The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Can he, can he do that? Can he do that? Can he do that? Can, can he do that? Can he do that? Can he do that? <laughs> Hi, I'm Martine Powers with The Washington Post. And for the next few months, I'll be filling in for Allison Michaels as the host of Can He Do That? A podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Allison is out on parental leave, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not really sure that I can pull off that trademark delivery of, can he do that? But till she's back, I'll be here to ask that question that's so central to the Trump presidency. Can he actually do that? And to ask some other questions too, like, will he do that? Should he do that? And how will he do that? That question of how will he do that? That's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. The first pillar of our framework generously offers a path to citizenship for 1.8 million illegal immigrants who were brought here by their parents at a young age. For the past few weeks, it seems like there's this one issue that has consumed the White House and Congress, and that's immigration. More specifically, the particular plight of particular people known as dreamers, people who were brought here to the U.S. illegally as children or who overstayed their visas and have been here ever since. The series of events that have unfolded in the past few weeks feels totally bonkers and frankly kind of confusing. So just to recap, in September 2017, Trump announced that he would end the program known as DACA, Obama's temporary protection program for young undocumented immigrants. And the way that he rolled it out, the whole thing is set to expire by March 5th. That deadline put a lot of pressure on Democrats to pass a permanent law before dreamers lose their protections. And they took a dramatic approach. The fight over spending in Washington is running headlong into the debate over so-called dreamers. And if lawmakers can't strike a deal on both, the federal government could shut down starting Saturday morning. Democrats decided that they were going to hold up a spending bill until Republicans agreed to give legal status to dreamers. You're waking up to a government that is shut down. Just a few hours ago, the Senate rejected a budget bill, forcing a shutdown for the first time in more than four years. But some of those Democrats got cold feet. The Republican leader and I have come to an arrangement. We will vote today to reopen the government. And they backed down in exchange for this vague promise from Republicans that there would be bipartisan negotiations on a long-term DREAM Act. It would be my intention to take up legislation here in the Senate that would address DACA. And that brings us to this past week. Folks in the Senate were given one week to hash out a bill to help DREAMers. There were all of these different plans. There was a Republican plan backed by Trump, which adds in a lot of stuff that Democrats don't like, like a Mexico border wall. And there was a bipartisan plan backed by moderates from both parties, which Trump straight up said that he was going to veto. The big question was whether any of these proposals could get the requisite 60 votes to move forward. And the whole thing kind of went down the way that you would imagine. I hear my colleagues in the majority say such nice things about dreamers, how talented they are, 
how hopeful they are, how important they are. But I say to them today that it's getting harder and harder to take your commitment to dreamers seriously when at every opportunity you have to do something, you do nothing. The longer my colleagues across the aisle refuse to come to the table, the longer they're unable to produce any legislation they actually support, the lower the odds that we can arrive at a legislative solution this week. Two weeks ago, while President Trump was taking cheap shots at immigrants during his State of the Union address and insinuating that all immigrants and asylum seekers pose an existential danger to our children and our families. One group I haven't heard from much, though, is our Democratic colleagues who literally shut down the government to force this debate. They've come up empty-handed. So let that sink in. Think about this just for a moment. The Senate Democrats recklessly shut down the federal government over immigration, and they did it over plans that they still largely haven't drafted. What is their plan? What is their proposal? Do they even have one? And if they do, why are they leaving the rest of us, as well as the nation, in the dark? The week came, the week went, no deal. And it feels like we came no closer to solving this problem. But here's the weird thing. There is this long history of Democrats and Republicans supporting the idea that these young adults should be allowed to stay in America. And that kind of begs the question, why is this so hard? Why has it been so difficult to find a solution to the dreamer problem if everyone says that they want it? And can Trump be the president to finally strike a deal on a long-term solution for dreamers? <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, so, it's so hard to predict. I mean, one minute he's having dinner with the minority leaders, you know, and saying, calling them Chuck and Nancy and everybody's friends. And then the next minute he's opposing everything. That's Maria Sacchetti. She writes about immigration for The Washington Post. But back in the late 90s, she was at the Orange County Register covering public schools and writing about these kids who were dealing with a problem that people were just starting to get their heads around. I covered education in California for five years. And that was at a time when uh, Southern California was dramatically changing demographically, where there were uh, many, many more uh, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, and Latinos were becoming the largest uh, group of students in public schools. And that was partially because Congress had passed a big immigration bill in the mid-1980s. It granted amnesty to several million undocumented immigrants. And it was supposed to fix illegal immigration. The idea was, uh, we're going to legalize these folks, we're going to crack down on employers. And instead what happened uh, was that the undocumented population in the United States more than tripled. It became much larger. It wasn't uh, controlled. And also in the mid-1980s, you have this other thing that happens. There's a Supreme Court decision, Plyler versus Doe, which basically says that you can't kick kids out of public schools just because they don't have legal status. So you have um, the undocumented population increasing, um, the law not being followed. But then the Supreme Court saying, you know, you really, if, if the children are here, we're gonna, you have to allow them to go to school from kindergarten through grade 12. But after grade 12, all bets were off. And even though they graduated from high school, 
they can't go to college because they can't apply for federal financial aid, they can't get in-state tuition, they can't legally work anywhere, and they can be deported at any time. Young people who were brought here as children, small children, were really starting to deal with this question of what happens to me after high school. And nobody really had an answer. For a while, these teenagers were scared to even talk publicly about the problem of their immigration status. They didn't want to draw attention to themselves, and they were scared of getting deported. I remember uh, interviewing people who were just terrified, you know, to, to use their names publicly. But that, that began to change. I remember covering a rally, and, uh, and some of the students actually used their names and, and surprised people by doing that and actually became a strategy for the dreamers. We're going to do the unthinkable for undocumented immigrants because they thought if people could see their names, understand their, their stories, see their faces, uh, hear their, their voices, you know, even just their um, American accents, you know, uh, you know it would, would help tell the story of how long they'd been here. And it, and it worked. You know, becoming political activists, you know, treating it as a civil rights issue, that changed public perceptions of them. People got to know the dreamers better. They weren't hidden. They weren't underground. Uh, and they got a lot of sympathy. And it's that sympathy that ended up resonating with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Members of Congress who'd previously stayed out of the immigration debate altogether, they felt the need to get involved. And so, in 2001, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin and Republican Senator Warren Hatch introduced the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, or the DREAM Act. It would allow DREAMers to get permanent residency, to go to college, to get a job, and to eventually provide a path for citizenship. There was growing bipartisan support for this kind of legislation from Congress, from the president, from the public— Finally, in 2007, a group of senators saw their chance. They started hashing out a comprehensive immigration bill, a bill that would include protections for dreamers. And then, over the course of many weeks, they watched it fall apart. It seemed like all the right elements were in place, but it didn't work. So what happened? What lessons can we learn from that failure? When I first started working for him, he hadn't had much involvement in the issue at all. Jen Olson was a legislative director for Senator Lindsey Graham back in 2007, right when he started working on this bill. It was a pretty remarkable process, and I actually give a tremendous amount of credit to the Bush administration at the time. They were absolutely determined to reach a bipartisan agreement on comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, We had two cabinet secretaries and goodness, a dozen senators every day in a room negotiating out that deal um, in, in 2007. Lots of amendment votes. There was a recess uh, in the intervening period, and um, a lot of members uh, really got beat up during that recess over the bill. Um, and we came back when you say beat up, what you uh, politically. Um, there were a lot of... Um, different groups that were concerned about the um, proposal or about the bill from both the left and the right. So the unions didn't love it. They didn't love the temporary worker program. And then you had a tremendous sort of outcry on uh, the right about uh, legalization of the undocumented population and, and quote, amnesty. Um, So just a lot of criticism from Republicans and certainly some elements on the left. 
And you may recall back in 2007, offices were being mailed bricks. It was a sort of build the wall sort of messaging piece. Um, and so we offices used to just get these little boxes that were just bricks. Your office got these? Uh, sure, yeah. And somebody, somebody's like there was like a there was I can't remember who uh, who organized it, but there was an effort from uh, people who firmly believed that we shouldn't do anything on legalization until we had secured the border. And um, so yeah, they mailed bricks, so little red bricks. So we had like a little stack of bricks, and then I think the um, the mailrooms tried to discourage that because <laughs> mail they were having to bring bricks to offices. But those are the t- I mean that was the type of pressure that members were under back then. And so we came back and um, really had lost a significant amount of support for the bill, and it, and it ended up failing. Of all of the issues that I've worked on and, and, and failed, um, and um, there have been many, um, that was the one that hurt the most. It was a really extraordinary process, um, and I've never seen that type of process repeated on other issues, and I've always sort of regretted that that's the case. I don't know that you could do that. Uh, in today's Washington, have that type of process that would lead to a, a bipartisan solution on a really difficult issue. So I, I wasn't necessarily optimistic that we would, if we couldn't do it then, it, it felt like it was going to be really, really hard to do for a while. And it has been hard. Members of Congress didn't stop trying. A standalone version of the DREAM Act was reintroduced later that year in 2007. But it failed, and it failed again in 2009, and again in 2010, and again in 2011. Which brings us to a key moment, June 15, 2012. Just a few months before the presidential election, President Obama called a press conference in the White House Rose Garden. Effective immediately, the Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. Over the next few months, eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. Obama decided to bypass all the back and forth in Congress and instead issued an executive action for the DREAMers. It was called DACA, which now stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And while DACA was a big reprieve for DREAMers, it changed the political landscape in significant ways. Some Republicans interpreted this as an obvious move in the last three months of the campaign to pander to Hispanic voters. They also saw it as a sign that Obama wasn't willing to work with them on a compromise. And that left people like Jen Olson, who had worked so hard on a legislative action for DREAMers with some conflicting feelings. I think it was unhelpful in a political context. I I don't want to, like, lose the human element here that people received legal protections who should have legal protections, and that is a good thing. But on the political side, I mean, you have members who, Republicans who support DREAMers who oppose DACA, you know, and so taking the executive action um, was not something they supported. I mean, my, my... my personal opinion is that uh, dreamers need to be taken care of through legislation. It, that the uh, the DACA action in and of itself was not a great approach. I understand why the president did it, and I'm glad that the dreamers had you know have the protections um, that they're 
may soon lose, but um, that they have them uh, for the time that they had them. But executive action isn't the way to solve this. There really does have to be a legislative solution. So Obama gets reelected in 2012. And some Republicans think that that was because of DACA, because these temporary protections for DREAMers resonated so much with Latino voters. And their takeaway from that is they need to do more to appeal to Latino voters if they're going to win back the White House in 2016. But for other Republicans, the takeaway was different. Why doesn't Donald Trump care about trying to get the Latino vote as well and using this as a way to attract more voters? Because he has wagered that there is another way to do it. That's Ed O'Keefe. He covers Congress here at The Post. And the way to do it is by, in many ways, demonizing immigrants or certainly raising concerns about elements of the immigrant population and as you all can recall, that whole Make America Great Again argument was also rooted in, in some sort of cultural and ethnic belief that the country was changing too rapidly. And many Republicans and some Democrats didn't like the fact that after trying and failing to work with Congress on a solution, he went on on his own and established in 2012, just before the elections, DACA, believing that he should have done that with Congress and that it was illegal. And so for all of those reasons, Trump was able to make the argument that this isn't the way we should be doing things. And, you know, not enough Republicans at least felt that they could stand up to him and say no. And they tried. They certainly did. I covered Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio's campaigns, and they took the exact reverse position of Trump on most of this. We have to respect immigrants. Trump had a completely different view on that. Spoiler alert, Trump wins the presidential election. And it becomes clear to him and his advisors pretty quickly that he can use the issue of dreamers as a bargaining chip to enact all these other things that he promised during the campaign. Secure the border, build the wall, crack down on immigration. And he figures out exactly how to force the issue sooner rather than later. He announces an end to DACA. Well, I have a great heart for the folks we're talking about, a great love for them. And people think in terms of children, but they're really young adults. Uh, I have a love for these people, and hopefully now Congress will be able to help them and do it properly. And I can tell you, in speaking to members of Congress, they want to be able to do something and do it right. And really, we have no choice. We have to be able to do something. And I think it's going to work out very well. And long term, it's going to be the right solution. I think, as someone who has tracked Washington and Congress and congressional gridlock that he was smart to force the issue because he is correct when he says that Congress has failed to address this for almost 20 years. The question will be, however, can he work with Congress to resolve it in a way that doesn't suddenly lead to mass deportations? It's been messy and dramatic and chaotic, but he promised to do that. And that's why people elected him. And so he's doing what he promised. The problem, the concern, is that it is upending a lot of people's lives right now and leaving a lot of uncertainty across society about what will happen. It's this catch-22. In some ways, by canceling DACA, Trump forces Congress to act with a lot more urgency than they ever have before. I mean, you have Democrats threatening to shut down the government for DREAMers. But in other ways, as Maria points out, things for dreamers are way more complicated now. now so now they're in the situation where, where they're a, a big bargaining chip, 
right. So where you have the people in power are the the people, the Republicans who used to be on the outskirts of the immigration base, kind of the outer edges, the most extreme policies that they didn't really have to fear so much up until now. I mean, George Bush, yes, George W. Bush, he uh, carried out immigration raids, but he also wanted immigration reform. He also wanted to legalize millions of people, and so did Obama, and, you know, they could reliably see that. But now it's a whole different ballgame. They're up against a much more formidable opponent. And, And what that opponent wants is much more than Republicans have demanded in the past. You know, they want sharp reductions to legal immigration. You know, they want a wall. Uh, They want tougher enforcement. And they see this moment as their last chance to get it. Because if Trump is not reelected, a lot of these, you know, these tough enforcement policies that he's put into place could be overturned, particularly if a Democrat wins. But some of the other things that they could put into place in Congress might be harder to overturn. And so they might last a bit longer. So they, they, they really do see this as, as their moment. So in some ways, the political will to find a resolution for the Dreamers is as high as it's ever been. But for Trump and conservative Republicans, there's also this new urgency to make big changes on a lot of other immigration issues, the ones that don't have bipartisan support. In the State of the Union, Trump laid out his plan for immigration reform. It includes things like building a wall, ending the visa lottery, and blocking family-based migration. All of these things in exchange for a pathway to citizenship for 1.8 million dreamers. Jen Olson gives the president some credit for putting a proposal on the table. I mean, it is an actual proposal, and it does include a pathway to citizenship for 1.8 million dreamers. And that's, that's great. Um, but these other four pillars have expanded the, um, the negotiating table in a way where you've almost become um, gotten sort of to mini comprehensive. So many of the provisions that would be sort of reasonable to talk about in the context of a comprehensive bill seem sort of unreasonable in the context of a DACA solution. So I, I think that in some respects that does, you know, certainly does change uh, change the debate. But you have a core group of members, and it's a large group of members who want, both bipartisan, who want to do something for dreamers. It's not, it's it's all of the, the other stuff around it that is the problem. It's not that in and of itself a dreamer, uh, um, the, the legislation for dreamers in and of itself is the problem. So that's how you end up with where we are now. There are dreamers, and then there's the wall, and MS-13, and this thing that they're calling chain migration. And you have bipartisan agreement to do something, but Trump threatening to veto if it's not his thing. And if that wasn't complicated enough, there's this one other issue that could upend everything. When Trump signed the order to end DACA, There were some people who challenged his decision in court, and they got temporary injunctions, which basically means that federal judges told the White House, look, while we're figuring out whether or not you can legally end DACA, you're not allowed to end DACA. So that means that there's a huge unknown variable here about whether DACA is actually going to end on March 5th. So considering all of these complications, all of these moving parts, can he pull this off? 
after 16 years of failed bills, can President Trump be the one to get an immigration bill passed in Congress? I hope so. I hope we can get a narrowly targeted package of um, DREAM Act and, you know, reasonable uh, border security funds uh, that allow us to sort of take this issue and say, we did it. Uh, We did it by partisan bill, but I won't put money on it. It's a, a question that I ask and I know a lot of other people ask on a regular basis. Here is why I think there will be some kind of resolution. Ultimately, I don't think he wants to be the president held responsible for deporting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are clearly contributing to society. I don't think he and Republicans want to be held responsible for this. There's urgent political need for Republicans to address this, whether they want to admit it or not. But the people who have been immersed in this for almost two decades, people like Maria, they're wondering, how much longer can this go on? What has this been like for you to cover? If you could talk to Maria from 2002 or 2003 and say, in 2018, we're still not going to have a solution to any of these kids' problems, would you have been surprised? Yes, I think I would have been, because under the Bush administration and certainly under Obama, it it seemed possible. It really did. She thinks back to those teenagers and 20-somethings that she used to interview. Those people who, for the first time, wanted to be quoted by name and wanted to be a symbol of an issue that was much bigger than themselves. They were serious about it. They would have sit-ins in senators' offices, and and they, they didn't want to hide anymore. Uh, so that was that was a big dramatic move, um, but at the same time, I've I've seen a lot of these young people grow older, like and grow old, gray-haired sometimes, and it's still not solved. And I think that is what's striking because it it does seem like it's uh, as as empowered as they have been, and 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 you know upbeat as they have been. You no, know, it, it's an agony. You know, there are people who have committed suicide. You know, there are people who have given up and gone home. And uh, it, it's, it's been, you know, really, really painful. And I'm reminded of that when I go out, like when you go out to the hill and you talk to them and, um, and they start to talk and they kind of rattle off the spiel that they practice for congressmen. But this is their real life. And, and they kind of start to break down. And I think they, some of them are, are, are worried about losing hope, and they're trying really hard not to. Thank you so much for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and find us anywhere else that you listen or at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post, produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lorraine Boglio, and some original music composed by Ted Muldoon.
Hi, I'm Mike Rosenwald, a reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm hosting a new daily podcast called Retropod. It's a show about the past rediscovered. Every weekday morning, we'll explore some of history's most dramatic moments. I'll introduce you to colorful characters from our past, forgotten heroes, overlooked villains, dreamers, explorers, world changers. Check it out on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or your favorite podcast player. For instructions on how to listen, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod. The Washington 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 Post. Post.